Again, we are in Revelation chapter 3. We're in the last letter, the letter to Laodicea. And I'm going to ask kind of a, a crazy question. And I'm really not saying it to be kind of gross or anything. I really are childish. I really have a point to this. But I just wonder how many of you out there have a weak stomach? A couple of hands. All right. Anybody out there have something that if you smell it or see it or hear about it, that it begins to make your stomach turn a little bit, right? Yeah, I got some. Yeah, when I was little, they had, they used to call it nervous stomach when I was little, but things could, you know, could trigger those kind of things. Sometimes it happens when people are nervous. I don't know how many of you are watching the Olympics. We talked about them last week, but um, I was I watched with uh, admiration and excitement as uh, Suni Lee, the American gymnast, won all around. And I don't know if you noticed, but she has this routine before every routine. She like puts her hand on her stomach to like calm herself down. And I was thinking uh, that's a visible sign of what every other gymnast is doing. Right. Like just let me calm down for a minute. Right. Some people get when they get upset or they get sad that they get an upset stomach. Some people when they're working out is too much. There is one thing that would always trigger in me what we call the gag reflex. And that was, and it, I don't have this anymore, and I praise be to God for this. But several years ago, I went through a stage where my life was filled with sippy cups for years, consecutively. And there would be always this time of year in the heat of July and August. It's crazy, it's August, right? In the heat of August... When you would be cleaning out the car, getting that piece of paper from underneath the seat, and there would lie the sippy cup. And the prayer would begin, Lord, if you could change whatever is in there into water in this moment, it would be awesome. Right? You were hoping for water. Apple juice is not preferable, but it's better than milk. Yeah, see, some of you are doing gag reflex even right now, right? And so when you would be brave enough and feel you had enough distance between you and the cup to gently unscrew and the milk revealed itself. (laughs) Some of it's a little too close to home at the moment, right? Right? It just happens. You're like, now why are you doing that? We got lunch to come. We're going to talk today about something that Jesus says makes him feel that way. I mean, literally, that's what he says in this passage. That the way the Laodiceans were acting made him want to vomit. And the word that they use for vomit, we'll get there in a minute. The word that he used is not the gentle, just kind of, I don't know what relaxing vomit would be, but it's not that. It is the spew, violent, projectile word. And I think that if there's something in our lives that could cause Jesus to have that sort of reaction, we need to know what it is. Amen? So let's look at Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 14. A little bit about Laodicea. It's, this is the passage in these first three chapters of scripture, maybe chapter one, but uh, of the letters for sure, this is the most preached letter. 
Part of that is because I think it hits closest to home for us as Americans. And we'll explain that in just a moment why that is. But a little bit about the actual town of Laodicea because it matters in this letter. First of all, Laodicea was a wealthy, wealthy, wealthy town. It had been burned to the ground at one point and a very wealthy family had rebuilt it in the finest way possible. It was like this city that had suddenly emerged with wealth and all the finest things you could find. Some people have compared it. I saw one scholar and one pastor compared it to Dubai in today's world. Where there wasn't much and now there is a lot. I've never been to Dubai, but I've seen pictures and watched some things on TV. And it's this magnificent city of wealth that has spurned. Now, what made them wealthy? Well, what made people wealthy back then? They were seated right in the midst of a place. Not only did they build well, but they had an exotic, rare brand of sheep that gave deep black wool. And it was considered the finest garments you could buy. And so they had this textile injury that was unbelievable. They were also in between a hot spring on one side about five miles away and a cold spring on another side coming off of a mountain where snow would melt. And they would use both of those to develop medical, medical helps. In fact, several legitimate treatments were found in medical centers in Laodicea. There's a church there that Paul started. In fact, in some of his writings, it talks about a letter that was supposed to go to them. We don't have the previous letter. We just have this one. But he says, write to the angel of the church in Laodicea, to the pastor of the church in Laodicea, to the person that's going to deliver this message. And then he gives, as always, the depiction of your of himself, of how we should see Jesus. And he says, thus says the Amen. The faithful and true witness, the originator of God's creation. We break that down just for a moment. The word amen is a word that we kind of throw out out in church a lot of times. And the way we mean it sometimes here is that was a good point or that was really good or we're ending a prayer with amen. And we do that because Jesus said that if you ask anything in the name of my father and at the end of the Lord's prayer, it says amen. But it's a word that has significant meaning. Jesus used it a lot. In fact, if you look in Scripture where it says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, or truly, truly, I say unto you, anytime Jesus say that, he was saying, Amen, Amen. Which is the Greek word which we get Amen from. Amen. And that meant it is trustworthy. It is true. It is right. Would have been like from three or four decades ago, the right on, man. Or that's absolutely true. And so when Jesus says, this is coming from the Amen, the word there means the validator. The one that makes it true and all things are right because of who I am. I am the truth. The validator. The that's right. And he explains that a little bit further, that he is faithful and true witness. Well, how do we know he is the truth? How do we know that he is the validator? Because he is the first witness of the true Christianity that was willing literally to give his life for us as a sacrifice. 
When it says faithful and true witness in the book of Revelation, faithful and true witnesses are people that are willing to declare the glory of God and the truth of Jesus Christ, no matter what it costs them, no matter what they have to give up, even if it calls them unto death. There's also this idea that he is the one that will stand firm at the end. The one that will validate at the end and the one in the faithful and true witness, the one that will be standing when this is all over. And he pairs that with not only am I the amen, the validator at the end, the one that has stood firm and will stand firm until the end. I am also the originator of God's creation. I was there when it all began. I am the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega, the originator and the amen on the end. And then he says to them this. I know your works. That you're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I am going to vomit you out of my mouth. Now, I mentioned a minute ago they were a medical center, and the medical center was there because they could go to these springs just a few miles away and get hot water or cold water. But they had tried to funnel that into their city. And one of the ways they had tried to funnel that into their city was through this aqueduct. And as they did, as they formed it and got it from the hot spring in particular, what happened is as it came down through the aqueduct, they had used some metals that would get into the water. And as it got closer to the city, it got cooler and cooler to the point that when it got to the place where they tried to draw it out of the well for the hot spring to come, that it wasn't good to be hot spring anymore. And they could not drink it because of the metals that it picked up. And it was just a lukewarm useless batch of water. In the same way, they thought, well, we'll bring the cold water in, and they tried to bring an aqueduct there, and by the time it got there, the water was no longer cold. It had warmed up to the point that now it was useless as well and still had those metals in there. And so literally there are stories of people in Laodicea drinking lukewarm, mineral-filled, metallic water and spitting it out of their mouth. And so when he says that to them... They would have immediately thought of what their water was there in town and would have said that they were felt by Jesus the same way that they felt about that water. Lukewarm. Neither hot and helpful in medicinal ways or cold and good to drink. And there are things in life that are good hot. There are things in life that are good cold. There are some things in life that are good both, but not in the middle. I love a good hot cup of coffee in the morning. I also love a good iced coffee or frappuccino. But if it's sat on my desk for two hours and it's not in one of those $400 mugs that keeps it hot, it's terrible. Now, you may like lukewarm coffee here and you're wrong, but that's okay. (laughs) Right? Right? I saw some people pointing at Kathy over there. I'm sorry, Kathy. So, right? But you understand, there's some things that are good, hot, or cold, but not in the middle. And so some people have read this through the years and been like, oh, so you're saying either be all for Jesus or not at all. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, you have just like the water in your town that is tepid and lukewarm and filled with things that aren't good to drink. That's how your life is because of your works before me. So what were they doing? Why was that there? 
Verse 17. For you say, I'm rich. I've become wealthy. I don't need anything. Now, just tell you how wealthy Laodicea was. In AD 61, there was an earthquake that measured what would most people, scientists say now. They didn't have the Richter scale back then. They didn't have seismographs measuring it. But they've estimated it would have been about an eight on the Richter scale. That's bad. It destroyed almost everything in that region. And the Romans from Rome, giving help to the Asian, Turkey, Asia Minor area, sent not federal funds, emperor funds to help rebuild. And when the emperor funds got to Laodicea, they said, we're good. We don't need any. We got everything we need to rebuild. They had everything they need, they thought in. And Jesus says, you say I'm rich. I've become wealthy and need nothing. And you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Those last three in particular go right at their three biggest industries. Poor, they had all the money that they needed. Blind, they had literally developed a medicinal salve to help people with eye problems. And they were considered the place where blind people could see. And naked, they were known for their wool and for their fine clothing. And he says, you think because you have figured out material things that you are good. But the reality is you are poor, pitiful, blind, naked, wretched. I saw this quote this week. It's from a Forbes article. It's quoted in Francis Chan's Crazy Love, which I'll reference again in a moment. And this is what it says. It is not scientific doubt, not atheism, not pantheism, not agnosticism that in our day and in this land is likely to quench the light of the gospel. It is a proud, sensuous, selfish, luxurious, church-going, hollow-hearted prosperity that will. They thought because they had stuff that they were good. They thought because they had figured out this medicine stuff and they had wealth and they had this fine clothing and that everything seemed to be going well in the midst of them, that everything was good. And Jesus says, you think you have all that, but spiritually inside you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. Now, by the way, the word that he uses for them is lukewarm. That isn't the same as hypocritical. Hypocritical means that you know you're lying about it. These people were convinced they were okay. And Jesus just says, you are under an illusion about it. That you think you're fine and you're not. And there's something at the core that is not right. And he gives them solution to this. He says, I advise you, and this is directly to, them, to buy gold refined in the fire so that you may rich. Buy from me. Come to me. Think about what I have. White clothes that you may be dressed. Not the black wool that you wear. Come for the white clothes that will be dressed and your shameful nakedness not to be exposed. And come to me for an ointment to spread on your eyes that you may see. Now, obviously, Jesus is not talking here about materialistic, literal things. He's not saying, by the way, i got a market outside of town that's got some better eye salve and some white clothing I need you to come get. He's saying you're worried about your outward appearance. You're worried about what everybody thinks about you. You're worried about what you've got. 
come to me because for me you can get the clothing that covers up the shamefulness of your sin. The whiteness that throughout the book of Revelation, the white robe represents the cleansing that comes from the blood of Christ that seals his people. Come to me to be forgiven. Come to me for wealth that cannot fade away, that moth and rust cannot destroy. Store up for yourself treasures in heaven, not on this earth, but treasures there. Come get gold that's been refined in fire that's not going to go away. And you need to see, come to me to have your eyes open to the reality of your own sinfulness and the reality of your own lukewarmness and the reality of the people around you that need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Come to me and get what you really need, not what you think you need. And then he tells them, it's, I say this because I love you. As many as I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be zealous And here's the word that's in all of these. Repent. Turn back to me. Verse 20. One of the most fascinating invitations in Scripture. And I'll tell you why in just a moment. Verse 20 says, See, look, be aware. I am standing at the door and knocking And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in with him and eat with him and he with me. To the one who conquers, I'll give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as also I conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Here's what's interesting about this invitation in verse 20. See, I stand at the door. Let's go back one one slide, I think, Josh. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears, they will open the door. Let me ask you a quick question, okay? Because sometimes I see this in an evangelistic way. People have this picture up, and the idea is that the Lord is knocking on the door of your heart, and if you will open up, He can come in, and you can be saved. And I'm not saying that that's not true. That is absolutely true. The Lord desires to save people, and if you're here today and you've not accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the Lord desperately has sought you out. He has given his life for you. He has gone the extra mile in doing all that he can to show you his love. And he is willing to accept you as you are, to forgive you of your sins and save you forevermore. And all you have to do is accept what he's been given. So absolutely that's there. But to whom is this letter written? It's to the church at Laodicea. Now, we use that phrase to talk about a building. When you say, I'm going to church, you mean I'm going to the building. Well, most people. Now, we all know that's not what church really is. Right? Right? Okay. It's where we meet, but the church is God's people. And so if it's a letter written to the church... They did not have, by the way, a sign out front that said First Baptist Church of Laodicea. Okay? That wasn't out there. They were meeting in people's homes. They were wherever they could get. They were being persecuted perhaps or maybe let go free. But they were doing okay. But they didn't have a nice elaborate building and all of that. And so when they're gathered together in a home, the church is the people. And if John is writing the words of Jesus to the pastor of this church that has given it to them, when it says, I stand at the door and knock, if you will open it and let me in, I will come in and eat with you. He is writing that to the church, which means at some point, symbolically, the church has shut Jesus out. 
Right? Right? Now, I'm not saying Jesus is in all places at all times, and I'm not saying anything about the sovereignty. I'm saying that in some way and somehow, Jesus has said, if you want to go on this on your own, you go ahead. I'm going to be here at the door, and when you're ready for me, let me know. I'm trying not to read too much into this place, but here's one thing I do think that this and other parts of Scripture teach, and that is that Jesus has a plan for this church that is to prosper and not to harm. It is to give us a hope and a future. He has a plan for you and for me, and he has a plan for this church to do great things. But if we insist at times to do it on our own and try to figure it out without him, he will stand at the door and say, let me know when you're ready. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to be a part of that church. He says to Laodicea, you think you got it figured out or you can figure it out on your own. I'm here. And when you're ready, I'm ready. Why does the lukewarmness, why does the doing it on your own bother Jesus to the point that he says at the beginning of this that he wanted to spew them out of his mouth? I think there are a couple of reasons. One is because it's disrespectful to the grace that he showed us when he saved us from our sins. To say, Jesus, thank you for saving me from my sins. We got it from here. Secondly, it tells the world a lie when our lives are not committed to him. He has literally given his all for us. When we give less than that to him, we are saying that it's not worth what it truly is. Yes. Several years ago, a guy wrote that the biggest cause of atheism in our culture are Christians who profess Christ with their mouth and then go and live their lives as if he doesn't really matter. For years, I've talked about the fact that one of the reasons that we're seeing, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, a decline from generation to generation in our culture at this moment is because we have parents that are living lukewarm Christian lives. And if Christianity is not real and all-consuming to you, it won't matter to your kids. I read this week from a section of Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from a Birmingham jail, and it was convicting to me to read this. It says, There was a time when the church was very powerful, In the time when the early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed, in those days the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed society. Small in number, they were big in commitment. They were too God-intoxicated to be intimidated. And by their effort and example, they brought an end to ancient evils like infanticide and the gladiator game. Just that thought that they were not a thermometer that gauged what was going on around them, but a thermostat that transformed. And I love this phrase, God intoxicated. After all, we're told not to be drunk with wine, to be filled with the Spirit. And so my question becomes, if I read this and I see that this is that problematic for Jesus, that disgusting to Jesus, that he would spew us out of his mouth because we are useless in our lukewarmness, the question that I have to ask is, what does it look like to be lukewarm? If the people in Laodicea didn't know it, how can we? A few years ago on our Brazil mission trip, we read a book. I mentioned it already earlier called Crazy Love by Francis Chan. In subsequent years, I've read other books that surround this idea of 
contemporary Christianity in America and where we've fallen into the traps that are there. There's a whole chapter in Crazy Love by Francis Chan that just is called Profiles of the Lukewarm. And any time that I come to this passage, I am drawn to that checklist because it's convicting for me. I'm not going to share the whole list. It's a whole chapter. But I have a few that I want to ask us as a church and you as an individual. Just to think about and to ponder. Because what I know is, if being lukewarm causes Jesus to want to spew me out of his mouth. He's not talking there, by the way, about losing salvation or any of that. He's talking about simply being unuseful in the kingdom of God and spreading it and giving glory to him. And if I am that, I want to figure it out. So what does a lukewarm Christian look like? One, they attend church pretty regularly, especially when the church gives them what they prefer. When they do programs that they prefer, when they do worship like they prefer, when they engage the community like they prefer. If the church is acting in the ways that they like, they go. But when the church does something different than their preference, they decide it's not for them. Lukewarm people give, but not at levels that actually impacts their standard of living. They spend time figuring out how much they have to give instead of how much they can give in a positive way. Lukewarm Christians, when pushed, choose what's popular over what is right. They want to make sure that there's not too much heat brought upon them or that they're not outcast too much. Lukewarm Christians want to be saved from the penalty of sin but not necessarily from the power and the enjoyment of sin. They want Jesus to forgive them of their sins and wipe away the penalty, but if in the meantime they don't have to give up some of their stuff that they like to do, that they know is contrary to God's word, they'd like to keep that. Lukewarm Christians are moved by stories of radical obedience. Missionaries, they give up all and go, but they don't give up anything. And they fail to realize that the call for radical obedience is a call for every single believer, not just special ones. Lukewarm Christians do not share their faith. They do not think it important enough to talk to those around them about Jesus. Lukewarm Christians gauge their righteousness against the secular world and say, at least I'm not as bad as, and then point to someone who is outside the faith, who is sinning in a particular way to make themselves feel better about their own lifestyle. Lukewarm Christians say they love Jesus, but he is a small part of their life. He is not their life entirely. They say they love Jesus, but not with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength, because that would be too much. Lukewarm Christians serve others within limits. If it makes them uncomfortable, their limit is reached. Lukewarm Christians think of life and plan for life on earth much more than they think about or plan for life in eternity. They are focused on the here and now, the materials that we have here, the relationships that are here, and not how those translate in eternity. 
Lukewarm Christians play it safe. They want to hunker down and make sure everything's protected and taken care of. They're like the third man in the parable of the talents that bury their talents in the ground so that nothing can take it away. They want to make sure they're protected on all sides. Make sure that everything is secure. When God's call on us is to be like the first two servants that risked it all, regardless of the outcome. Lukewarm Christians do not live by faith. They don't need to. The refrigerator stocked. The house payments are manageable. They're not giving at a level that would cause them any kind of discomfort. They're comfortable. Lukewarm Christians, in reality, although they may not say as many bad words or do as many obvious sins as other people, are not that different than their unbelieving counterparts. They run their lives and their churches and their businesses with the same principles and ideas instead of following the call of Jesus in their life. You say, I'm rich. I have need of nothing and I'm wealthy. And you don't realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. My prayer is, That I, myself, that we, that you individually, and you as a group collectively, y'all, that we would seek to determine from the Lord where we stand on the lukewarmness scale. And my real prayer is that we wouldn't let Jesus stand outside the door waiting to come in. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we just pray in this moment, in this time of response, that you would move, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray that our lives would be built to give you the glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.